Hey everyone, welcome to In the Trenches, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. Each episode, I interview somebody who I think has the ability to either improve or at the very least inform some aspect of your personal or professional life. If you want access to the show notes from this episode, please visit inthetrenches.net, where I'll post a summary of our discussion today, as well as links to any of the resources that we discussed so that you have easy access to them. Lastly, if you want access to any of our podcast episodes or our blog, please subscribe at inthetrenches.net. Hey guys, so I am super excited for today's episode where I interview somebody named Rich Manders. Now, the reason why I wanted to talk to Rich today is because he has basically done everything that a CEO and entrepreneur can do. He has founded companies, he has operated and grown them as CEO, he has sold companies, he has acquired companies, uh, and now he acts as a coach for other entrepreneurs and CEOs. So, Here are a few reasons why I think Rich is somebody who is worth listening to. He co-founded and led a company called iAutomation, which is a machine control and automation company. And he grew that business from nothing to $90 million in sales with 180 employees. After selling that business to the Riverside Company, which is a leading global private equity firm, he stayed on with the business, and alongside his partners at Riverside, he grew the company by a factor of 8x, which resulted in a greater than 50% IRR to his investors after his second sale of that company. Alongside Riverside, uh, Rich has played a key role in seven completed acquisitions, and over time has evaluated countless others from the perspective of both a buyer and a seller. He has board experience across private companies and alongside his original business partner from iAutomation, now runs Freescale Coaching. And Freescale Coaching is a coaching business where he advises and mentors entrepreneurs and CEOs to help them achieve notable growth within their own businesses. Rich's entrepreneurial success story is actually the subject of a case study at the Harvard Business School, and that is actually where I was first introduced to him in my second year of study there. Uh, Since then, Rich has actually taught several courses and seminars at Harvard, among other leading business schools. And in our conversation today, we, we do cover a lot of ground. We cover basic tenets of private company operations. We talk specifically about how CEOs should think about managing and allocating capital within their own businesses. We talk about buying and selling businesses and some of the merits and risks of using M&A as a growth strategy. We talk about managing yourself and some of the strategies and tools that he used to manage his own psychology and energy over his entrepreneurial journey. And lastly, we talk about a lot of books and a lot of other resources that he has used over time and since uh, recommends to other entrepreneurs and CEOs running small to medium-sized businesses. We talk about books and resources throughout, but particularly at the end. So if you are interested in learning more about that, do be sure to listen to the very end. So without any further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Rich Manders. Rich, welcome to the show. Hi, how's it going? I'm doing well. And uh, I will tell you that 
Um, one of the challenges in considering what to ask you You've been a founder, you've grown businesses substantially as an entrepreneur, you've bought them, you've sold them, and now you're coaching um, SMB CEOs. And so one of the challenges is kind of where do I focus? But what I decided to do is try to touch on a little bit of everything. So where I wanted to start is just with some basic company operations questions. Uh, from then, we'll go on to kind of questions of managing and allocating capital. Then we'll go to buying and selling businesses and kind of managing yourself and managing your entrepreneurial mindset. But where I wanted to start is just some kind of nitty gritty operations. And you have now been an investor with the private equity firm Riverside after having spent many years as an entrepreneur yourself and selling your business to them. I'm curious, what did you learn through your experience as an investor that maybe you wish you had understood better when you were a CEO. So I guess another way to ask the question is how has your investor lens kind of colored your operator lens, if you will? Yeah, well, I think most folks, when they start a business, it's usually a form of a passion project, right? In the sense that it's typically something that they're good at and they um, expand on that. If you've ever read the book, The E-Myth, which um, is a fantastic book, most people start with this passion project in mind and this and this idea of uh, building freedom for themselves as part of uh, getting there. And so that and that passion drives you through and, and helps you be successful early on. But what I learned on the investor side and watching Riverside, for example, um, they've done about 500 deals over 30 years with an unbelievable track record is that's not what drives them. It's a system to follow, a, a, a organizing system. And I had seen it before in another company that I was a, a partial owner of and uh, involved on the leadership team that we sold to a company called Danaher. Um, and Danaher is probably one of the best wealth building companies of all of recent history, for sure, if not all time. Um, and <clears throat> Similar to what I learned in Riverside is that they have a they have a very specific system to build value inside of a business, and it's pretty much product agnostic. It's the right things to do to grow a business, a roadmap to take something of value and make it much more valuable over time. And having that roadmap gives you very predictable success. They they really understand what are the drivers of value, what are the levers you can move, and then they uh, dig hard to find the right data to uh, make sure that the things that you're doing to move those levers work, and then they skip, They are able to do that and then make the business scale much faster value-wise, and it's taking some of the emotion out of it and becoming really uh, powerful. The other thing that I learned is that really you're investing in um, the team. It, when when these companies, uh, the, the the really smart investors look, you, what you're at a business, it's less about a individual or even the specific product or market that they're in, but in a team that can uh, climb mountains and figure things out and zig and zag pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And so, as an entrepreneur, if you do not yet have uh, a private equity parent or some. Um, ownership group that has the ability and the experience to kind of execute on this quote playbook, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, 
what are some of kind of the high level tenets, the high level pillars of the playbook now that you've had an ex a certain experience? Certainly sounds like a focus on hiring and getting the right people in the right seats as part of it. Are there yeah. aspects to it that cover things like, you know, pricing or financial management or, you know, bringing in, you know, building new you know, internal systems? Like what are some of the high level tenets of this kind of playbook? So um, the probably at the top of the playbook is really understanding the market that you're playing in. Uh, so having <clears throat> having some good data, how big is the market? Where um, are the, you know, who is your core customer and what do they need? And how can you fulfill that in a way that's different than uh, other people can, right? So building a moat around that value proposition. So, and figuring out really how how to narrow your focus down to not try to be everything to everyone but to <laughs> be the right thing in a in a small focused area and and drive that value proposition really hard and then you can keep adding on to that right that so that's the first thing i would say is stop trying to be everything to everybody and try to be really special to just a small group of people um the, Pricing plays a giant role in that, because um, since you brought that up, um, when you figured out who are the core, you know, who's that core customer who can you can really deliver value for, pricing becomes much less of an issue because you're building value for the for the client at a faster rate that they're willing to pay a higher price. They don't even think about it, and so getting getting that is the first thing. The second thing is I would look at your, you know, look at your team differently and look at them from a capacity perspective, right? You know, what's the capacity of the people that you have on your team and what can you do to build that capacity in them or recognize that they're the, a lot of times the folks that you have on your team are the perfect right person to have gotten you where you are, but are not the right person for where you want to go. Right. So, you know, easy example is um, the person who manages your HR um, in the beginning, right? That's, you know, you're managing benefits, you're dealing with uh, getting people onboarded, you're dealing with all this stuff. And, and maybe at a small company, 10, 15 people, that's, that's a full-time job. Um, when you scale that business to hundreds of people, now really that's not the job at all anymore. It's really managing a team of people who are delivering value to the people in the organization and making sure that you're uh, getting a good return on investment from those people. And so that job is just a completely different job from being a firefighter to being a manager is a huge change. And that's happening all over your business. So be aware of where you want to be. So most business owners have a picture in their brain of I want to double my business sometime in a time frame that is between a year and 10 years, right? I want to take it from where it is today to double. And we look at your team and decide who on that, who's on the boat with you that's going to be there at double, who has the capacity and actually wants that future job. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. That makes and be good at that. And the, the, the second one is um, you, you have to switch from, as you mentioned earlier, uh, firefighting in the business. So working, you know, in the business, right, solving problems all the time 
to really making that transition to working on the design of the business, how the business functions and improving the design on how you acquire customers, how you uh, win them over, how you deliver to those customers and how you get them to buy again is a critical business function that every business has. And you really want to be looking at that as a design problem. How do I keep making that better? Um, and I would add back to that data question is most businesses, the Achilles heels of a small business is that they don't actually know where they're winning and losing. They don't have a good scorekeeping system. They don't know what are the most profitable customers, what are the ones that you're bleeding, et cetera. And in many cases, it's not what you think. The big customers are the ones that kill you and the medium sized ones, there's like a sweet spot in the middle which is where you really win the day is by at finding them and adding them and creating a great system. So getting good data so you can make great decisions. Now, you've talked about growth and uh, your company grew very rapidly uh, over the course of many years. I, I don't think my company ever grew as fast as yours, but there were a few years where we had pretty notable growth. And one of the things that I learned as a rookie CEO is that managing growth is uh, can present different challenges from managing uh, in a lower growth environment. And, and sometimes I would describe it to my wife as I feel like I'm trying to change tires on a moving car. Um, and so as a CEO who's managed high growth, um, what, do, what do a lot of people not understand about managing a high growth company? I guess said another way, like what, what unique challenges does high growth present for the small to medium business CEO? Yeah, so let's, if you break it down into four buckets, um, people, strategy, execution, and cash, let's start with the end one, which is cash. Um, most businesses have a, what we call a cash conversion cycle. Um, for example, you spend money on an advertisement or getting a, a lead, and the time from when you spent that or having a salesperson make a sales call from the time you have that person make that visit or do that call or pay for that lead till you actually have the cash in the bank depends on the business is somewhere between 60 and uh, 60 days in a year. Mm -hmm. And because of that, the money that means that the money's following the actual cash from your growth is following behind usually when the bills show up. And so the really understanding cash flow and making sure that you are doing the best you can to shorten that time um, to provide the right funding. So just in general, fast growth requires a lot of cash because you're funding expenses ahead of being able to collect the money. So that's the first one. Um, from a strategy perspective, it's really the question is the way that you're acquiring customers, taking care of customers, um, and, you know, delivering product, et cetera, as you scale really fast, those systems tend to break down. And the, the way that you would acquire those customers needs to change, right? So if you're a business that uh, knocks on doors per se, right, whether it's by phone or Zoom calls or in person, um, scaling that way is very time consuming and difficult. And so you need to find new ways to acquire customers, new ways to, to grow things. So that's the strategy bucket. On, on the execution side is look at your systems um, and how you execute. And what you're going to find is some of your infrastructure is not going to work at the next level of scale. Um, 
I, I have a client that I, I worked with a few years ago who built his business and ran the whole thing on an Excel spreadsheet. And he grew it to about $40 million with, you know, no of re annual revenue with no ERP, just running it with this spreadsheet. And so the company was about, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. And each month he added another row to the spreadsheet. And one day he went to add another row to the spreadsheet and it's and Excel said, you've hit the limit. <laughs> Yikes. And all of the, and his whole business ran on the spreadsheet and everything was linked backwards in time. So you couldn't just delete a chunk of history and like start over. And so for several months, they had to stop most everything inside that business and fix that. Get an ERP system in, uh, transfer all the data, train everybody on it, et cetera. It took, you know, better part of a year really to get back on track of growth. And so there's those types of things. So your uh, financial systems, your customer uh, maintenance system. So typically like a CRM system, uh, what you're using for doing your accounting, you know, et cetera. QuickBooks doesn't really solve above, you know, 25 or 50 million in revenue, et cetera. You're looking at those things that are, you know, you used to run your business and figuring out what's going to fail. And then last on the people side is back to that question of, do you have the right people in the right seats with the capacity for where you need to go? And getting ahead of that, the, where you see problems there, capacity and the desire, right? And so having the conversations with them about their desire for this future role, where you're moving from being a doer to a delegator, to a manager, to a designer, inside your department, right? Those different phases of being a leader. Do they actually want to be on that journey or are they, hey, I'm the startup guy. Like I love working in startups where it's scrappy and small and you know, when it gets big, I'm, I'm out, right? So knowing that you have those challenges in your organization and getting ahead of it, because making critical leadership hires takes a long time takes a lot of effort, takes a lot of money, take, et cetera. So getting ahead of that is really important for being able to keep up. And lastly, on the people part is there, there's all kinds of studies out there that um, basically the complexity of your organization goes up by the square of the number of people in the organization. And so as you scale the number of people in the organization, you need to basically make sure that you're having your communication rhythms move faster and faster and much more structured so that communication cascades up and down the business every day, every week, every month, every quarter, every year in a very structured and similar way, which then facilitates the ability to deal with that complexity. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, I found from my experience in some of our higher growth years, there were a couple of things that I would add and some of the things that I would just double click on. So one of the things that I remember is hiring was challenging in a higher growth environment um, because, you know, the, the business need was such that we had to hire quite rapidly. Uh, and of course, depending on, you know, the, the position that we need to fill, sometimes that talent can be hard to acquire quickly. And then of course, there is the question of hiring um, enough for the current demands of the business, but also trying to balance uh, not hiring too quickly in case the business slows down because it's, it's easy to add bums and seats, but it's much harder and there are more implications to take them away if you kind of overdo it. 
So I found yep. hiring to be kind of a, a harder aspect of high growth. I found prioritization and focus became you know five times as hard because there's more customers, there's more products, there's more problems, there's more opportunities, there's more things that you have to say no to. And if you don't have a system for like what to say yes to and what to say no to, you find that you're just making these like seemingly arbitrary decisions on a daily basis. And that that doesn't scale, or at least it gets really hard. Yep. Um, and then the last thing that you mentioned is communication, which I think is a great point. Um, so that's where I want to go next. So you know, basically what I heard you say is that communication, if not properly managed, can get worse as companies scale. And that's, that's been my experience. So what, yep. you know, what are some communication best practices that CEOs should implement as they grow to make sure that they don't kind of fall prey to that common mistake? Yeah, so it, it really is setting up what I like to call this um, strategic respiration, where you're, you know, breathing in, breathing out. Um, inside the business by creating these cascading huddles that happen in a very specific order. And so, and depending, the faster the business grows, the more often you need to have these huddles. So in a very high growth business, every single person in the company should be in a daily huddle, for example, where, and actually really almost everybody would be in two, except for the front, the very front line, which is, you're meeting with your peers, so the other managers of the other departments, but first you're meeting with your team, then the managers of the other departments, then the, then the you know top management team and with a CEO, right, in a three-level business on a daily basis. And you're following a very specific format for daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual uh, communications that's... Um, we're, we're huge fans of the level 10 meeting, which comes from the traction book, mm -hmm. which is really making a very disciplined way of having your meeting structured so that you get all the data out in front of everybody quickly and you spend the time solving the most important problem for that cycle, right? So if I'm in a weekly meeting, it's like, what's the most important problem for this group to solve this week? And ignoring the other stuff and, and ignoring the things that are green, right? So if you if you color code things and say green is it's going fine, yellow is it's in, got the potential to get into trouble and red is we're not gonna make this goal. Um, we're really focusing on the reds and the yellows and not discuss it, having any discussion around the green. And with the idea that you're solving the most important problem every week, every month, every quarter, every day that's in front of you, that really drives um, that communication to stay very crisp. It's when you have meetings that drift around and you talk about everything. And kind of like you said, that the possibilities that of things that you could work on are endless. Yeah. Really getting down to like what's with with a group of talented people, what's the most important thing for us to work on right now? It it just changes the way that everything works inside of a business. And, yeah, it, it really, speaks, really facilitates that speed of communication. It speaks to your earlier point about um, how jobs uh, in seats scale as companies scale. And, you know, in this context, it seems like, you know, um, at the kind of founding stage of a business where maybe there's a handful of employees, uh, informal communication mechanisms and structures work. They work just fine. But as you get bigger and bigger, um, communication as a discipline effectively becomes a, a, an entirely different job. And I think what I'm hearing from you is, um, 
if you allow your communication mechanisms to remain informal, or if you don't have any communication mechanisms at all, that's where communication starts failing. It's more in like the structure and the repeated kind of cadence of communication that um, helps prevent growing businesses fall prey to the, you know, communication gets worse as companies get bigger problems. Exactly. You, you want to have whatever's appropriate for you, but it, so our business was called iAutomation, the last one that I built. And we had the iAutomation way we did things. And we taught people, and we had iAutomation University, we taught people how to integrate into our system and be a part of it. And we, re we refined those things over time that made up the iAutomation way, but it was consistently applied from top to bottom across you know a couple hundred people. So let's stay on this topic of growth um, because as part of a growing business, um, you had an option to, and, and you know, as running it as the CEO, you had the the opportunity to provide your leadership team or maybe your employee base more broadly with options or equity in your business. And and I had the same thing. So in my case, uh, I gave options to my management team, and ultimately when we sold the company you know, they benefited financially from that. But I, I don't know where I kind of reside on the spectrum of um, options are a very, very important tool to attract and retain talent versus they're a little nebulous, they're a little amorphous, and people just kind of treat them as gravy. And maybe you'd be better off just giving profit sharing because it's more immediate term in nature. So you know, did you give your management team or your employees like an economic interest in the business? You know, why or why not? And how do you think SMB CEOs should think about, you know, this question of whether or not to give uh, key people an economic interest in their business? Yeah. So the, uh, there's a few, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there, but um, th to answer your first question, yes, we did mostly for just for management. Um, we gave uh, options in you know along the way the the challenge with options as you pointed out is that the time horizon is pretty far out there and 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 we use and you could whether they're options or uh stock appreciation rights or phantom stock or whatever um unless you have an exit pegged for how they're going to get that value that don't don't do it right because um if you're running a private company and you have no idea when you're going to sell it. It's um, too far out for people to have a real economic interest in in that part of the business, right? So, mm -hmm. just your your a private company is a liquid, right? As a general rule, unless you're going to build in a way that they can get that value out, which also has its own problems. But if you're going to do it. Right. So let's just say that you do have. So we always had in mind that we were going to sell the business. We had a time horizon that we uh, expected it to happen. It didn't turn out that way. It took longer, but which I can tell that's a whole nother story. But the the this then the responsibility of you as the leader or the leadership team is that you have to educate those people that you are granting these options or uh, appreciation rights to you have to educate them as to how it all works. And it's not small, it's not a small thing to, because now they have to understand how a business will be valued. What are the levers that make that value go up? Um, how do they play a role and what's their responsibility? What are the KPIs that they're driving that make the business more valuable over time? 
And so you have to really spend an, an inordinate amount of time educating the team and reminding them of why you're doing the, you're driving this way for the business, right? So those are all the, the downsides. We spent a lot of time educating people as to how driving the value of the business is going to be good for them so that they could connect the dots between, okay, if I improve gross profit by 5%, as an example, what's that do to the value of the business? And how does that then reflect back to me on the increase in value for my options? And of course, then throw on top of it, market conditions change everything, right? Like right now we're in a crazy valuation period um, where companies are getting ridiculous valuations. So those options could be worth a lot, but that won't last forever either. So um, having a clear picture that and an educational system for that. I'm much more a fan of shorter term bonuses because the, the second thing is no leader has ever figured out a compensation program that is good that forever, right? That's um, temporary. <clears throat> so the when you use shorter term bonuses that are based around the achievement of objectives in a time frame, now somebody can wake up in the morning and do something that's going to result with, to a financial change for them in the shorter term. And if you can make it that it's not about a formula per se, but about the achievement of a goal, that's the best because the problem with formulas is that they become obsolete. For example, if I have a salesperson and I say, I'm going to give you 5% of our gross profit and that's going to be your bonus. Well, as the company grows, that 5%, one becomes a ridiculously large number. And secondly, uh, I have to deal with either shrinking your territory or changing the percentage and so on. So it gets to be this never ending battle between me and somebody else about the formula. Yeah. Instead, I say, this year, I want you to improve gross profit by, say, $100,000. And in exchange for that, if you hit that target, I'm going to give you $20,000. And then we'll renegotiate next period what that's going to be. You solve for a lot of that hand-wringing and, and debating about changing a formula that somebody's gotten used to. Because one thing's for sure, people will figure out how to game the system. Right. Short-term bonuses based around achievement of, of objectives has been the best uh, compensation program for most leaders and frontline employees. But in a big business, you know, with an exit in mind can benefit greatly by having options or some variation on the theme. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because having, you know, issued options to my management team and then selling the business, I think ultimately they were viewed as kind of gravy as opposed to the tool that produced these deep motivational characteristics that I was looking to create. And, and um, now that I've kind of gone through that experience and as I'm rethinking my own approach to options versus short-term bonuses versus other kind of incentive mechanisms, I use almost like a decision criteria similar to um, smart goals, right? So is it measurable, right? Well, a, a bonus is much more easily measured than, uh, stock options, right? Particularly for executives who are not particularly financially inclined, it's a lot easier to explain a bonus than it is stock options. You know, is it reasonably attainable? It's kind of easier to understand, okay, if I increase gross profit by 5%, I understand that. 
Whereas it's a little bit more nebulous to say, if I increase gross profit by 5%, here's what gonna, it's going to do to the company valuation and therefore my share price. And then the, the big thing for me was time-based, right? And, and I think generally speaking, it's been well-established that the less time there is between action and reward, the higher the motivational qualities of that reward. Whereas if I give you an option today, and I say, hey, we're planning to exit in 10 years. You know, there's really no clear link between those two things. And as a result, the motivational characteristics that you're trying to create might be lost. Yep. And yeah, I've seen it work. It definitely, I agree with everything you just said. And I'll add to it that if you're going to use those options, you have to be talking about them regularly if you want it to have any value. Right. right? So, having that company valued by, you know, independently, for example, or finding comps in your industry so that each quarter or at each year, you're basically doing an update and saying, hey, the value of the options pool has gone from X to Y, your share of that is Z. And I, I'm super excited about that. And we're aiming next quarter to make that be Z 1.5 or whatever right and now people are get can get at least go home and tell their significant other hey check this out this thing you know that when i'm working hard i'm building value check out like what our account looks like now yep. there's all kinds of legal ramifications to that so uh, i'm not a lawyer so you want to make sure that you say these things in the right way um about how the value is increasing but uh make sure that you're doing that if you're going to use that as a tool yeah yeah i agree so you know, whether you share uh, an ownership interest in your business or not, one of the questions that I often get from uh, particularly younger CEOs is how much information should, should they share with their employees? Should they show them, you know, every line of the financial statement? Should they show them only revenue? This was something that I struggled with as a, as a younger CEO. Ultimately, where I um, kind of uh, landed was to really just kind of open up the kimono and, and be incredibly transparent. And, and the logic that I used in making that decision was, hey, if, if I need my employees to help me get to a certain financial goal, how can they help me get to that goal if they're flying blind, right? If they yeah. don't know kind of where they are and where we want to be. So that's the way that I thought about it. But you know, that I'm just one person. So how do you think kind of the, the average small to medium sized business CEO should think about this question of how much to share with their employees? Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm 100% aligned with you, right? So if, if you're paying people a salary and you're having them around, you, I'm assuming that you're bringing in the right people, right? That um, you're, you're, you've got people who you value what they can do for you. And so, um, I'm open book all the way because I want them to basically have an input into us getting to where we want to go. And if they understand how the system works, so this goes back to having education as part of your business model. How does this business function? The most, the thing that surprised me is everybody thinks you're making, when you're running a small business, everybody thinks you're making a lot more money than you actually are. Especially <laughs> Always. Especially if they can understand cash flow, and um, so you need to teach that. And if you do that, now they're all part of the problem-solving team. So you've got you know a dozen or a hundred or a thousand minds all trying to figure out how to make the machine work better. 
And so by sharing that information with them, they start to learn. I'm a huge fan of uh, Jack Stack, who uh, wrote a book called The Stake in the Outcome. And what he talks about is teaching everybody in the company how the finances of the business work so that they can uh, solve for it. And in our business, we used to teach that at iAutomation. And we started with an easy example because our business was pretty complicated. We had inventory and we had acquisitions we had made and so on. So there was you know, depreciation, amortization, you know, et cetera, that's more complicated topics. But we just started with this concept of a bagel shop. I'm starting a bagel shop. I'm good at making bagels. I buy an oven and, and you know, pots and pans and so on. It costs X. And now I start building up my sales. How does that affect cash? And we would teach this once a month, we would have a group, you know, groups of people who are coming into the company, new employees, and we would teach them how the bagel shop worked along with like this, the, the kind of big decisions that you would need to make. So in this proverbial bagel shop, one day we get a call from the local school district and the local school. And so let's say we're doing a thousand dollars a week in bagels. And the school district says, hey, we want you to become our bagel supplier, and that's going to be $10,000 a week worth of bagels. Okay, how's that going to work? How, what do we need to buy for equipment? What do we, who, how many people do we need to hire? Oh, by the way, the school pays net 60 days because that's what, how they do it. So what's that going to do to our cash flow, et cetera? And you teach this basic concept of this steady eddy business that experiences a hyper growth moment, and how does it how do you what are the challenges that'll fall out of that now they get it and so when they look at the business okay how are we going to make this machine more efficient and they understand the underlying pieces behind it in the book in the jack stack book they, i believe the exam one of the examples was a guy who uh was a janitor sweeping the floor who learned all these business principles and went to jack uh and said hey, I see something here that doesn't feel right. I, I think there's a better way. And it was a multi-million dollar profit problem that he solved. Ch changed, wow. changed the business, how the business functioned, but be, the guy who's pushing the broom, right? You want, so that's the picture I want you to have in your brain is like the guy that's pushing the broom is often the person who knows more about what's going on than the CEO about how to make that, you know, what's not working well inside your business. Yeah. So the more they know, the better off they are. Last question for you as it relates to kind of company operations. We're going a little bit higher level here outside of the day to day, but a lot of entrepreneurs and CEOs listening to this will have a board of directors. Um, and, you know, as a young CEO, there was a bunch that I did wrong about kind of communicating with my board, utilizing them as a resource, but also kind of managing them for lack of a better phrase. So, you know, you've reported to a board, you've been on boards as a result of, you know, those experiences, what have you learned about dealing, how to best um, manage a board, how to best utilize a board? So what should CEOs do with respect to uh, their boards? What should they avoid doing uh, with respect to their boards? But, you know, so boards are, is a pretty broad category, but I'm gonna go with the idea that you've brought in outside investment and some of the people on the board are your investors. Sure. Because um, there's advisory boards and then there's formal boards. So um, I'm gonna go with a formal board first. Um, and so the first thing is don't expect them to tell you what to do. 
In fact, you don't want them to tell you what to do. Um, you want to tell them what you plan to do and then get feedback from them about what they're concerned about or their thoughts on what your plans are. That's where the real value is. It, a lot of people got, figure, oh, I'm going to get a board and they're going to be full of these amazing ideas of how to make my business better. And in most cases, that's not what you're going to get. You're going to get people who are seasoned business veterans who can poke holes in your strategy and give you good, good ideas about what you might need to change. Um, so that's the, that, that's the first part of the value proposition. Uh, best as possible is make sure you're stacking the deck with folks who've been where you want to go. So um, on our board, we had two people who had built businesses similar to ours in, in a you know, similar industry at a speed that we um, wanted to go with outside investors. And they were invaluable in helping us with managing you know, the investor expectations our team's expectations and some of the challenges that we would have we would see along the way of going there. Um, so make sure that you've got people on that board that have done what you want to do as part of it. Um, second thing, and you'll see this is a recurring theme with me is build a rhythm with the board meetings, the board members outside of the board meetings. So what I mean by that is make sure you're having regular one on ones with them in between typically the rhythm is you're going to meet quarterly with a board um, but in between that maybe on the six week mark or something after the board meeting it's just do like a half hour an hour one-on-one -on -one, if possible in person with those board members and just say hey what what's your feedback for me what do, what do you what do you see out there what should i be focusing on where are my blind spots right etc asking those questions involve the board members in special projects so focus groups, recruiting, uh, getting, you know, looking at the people that are there. I, I've also found having the people on your team coming into the board meetings and doing a presentation to the board helps you, helps the board get a sense of who's on your team and gives you a good outsider perspective uh, with that. So making sure you're doing those things is yeah. really important. And in my experience, uh, having some key executives present to the board is something that my key executives really enjoyed. I think they um, got a lot of value from the fact that I kind of trusted them to speak to the board. And in my experience, it forced them to get outside of kind of working in their function and kind of mm -hmm. speaking about working on their function. Yeah. Um, so in some ways it kind of forced a div different level of thinking that otherwise might be hard to create without that kind of forcing function. Yep, exactly. Okay, so let's move on from kind of day-to-day -day company operations and let's move on to the concept of managing and allocating capital, which some would argue is, you know, one of the most important jobs of a CEO. So, and let's start with cash because we've talked about cash quite a lot uh, today mm -hmm. for good reason. So, um, how did you think about as a CEO, how much cash should you keep on your balance sheet? And of course, every business is different. There's different working capital cycles, et cetera. But, you know, broadly speaking, on one hand, you know, if you have a lot of cash on your balance sheet, it's quite conservative. It, it provides you with a potentially valuable buffer against unexpected events like COVID-19. But, but on the other hand, the pure kind of finance 101 would say too much cash is um, overly conservative, not an efficient use of capital. 
So, you know, where did you lie on that spectrum and how did you think about how much cash to keep on your balance sheet? And, and did your time as an investor, you know, change your opinion over time? Yeah. So um, the first thing in general, I believe a safe bet is that you want to have six months cash flow runway tucked away. And when I say tucked away, I don't mean in a line of credit because line of credits get pulled when you need them often. Right. So uh, the holy grail, I was able to sleep pretty well at night knowing that I had six months of cash in, you know, in the bank, accessible and ready to go if we hit a rough spot right in the business, which, hey, who, who would have predicted a pandemic not too long ago, right? Um, so having that's kind of the number that I think of that way. But again, it is, it, so six months of cash does not mean six months of revenue. It does not mean six months of profits. It's really understanding, and this is a critical piece for whoever's listening to this. If you're a smaller or medium-sized business, is it is absolutely critical that you understand your cash conversion cycle so that you know how long the cycle is from when you spend money till you get the money back. So I'm really getting a good handle on your cash flow and understanding it will give you, then that's the number. How many months, if I had uh, no revenue, could I survive for with, with the resources I have on hand? Also don't count on receivables because during a down cycle, uh, most companies stop paying their receivables during the first part of the pandemic. So you can't count on that either, but really cash is the six month number. So if you've got, you know, um, let's say you've got your six month cash flow buffer and then you've got excess cash on top of that. Um, then you've got a capital allocation decision to make because you know at a hundred thousand foot level you could take that cash and invest it back into your existing operation. You could you know buy equipment, you could hire people, whatever. You could acquire another business. You could issue a dividend to the owners. You could pay down debt. You could repurchase shares. There's all these different uses of cash, which broadly speaking yeah. is is kind of called capital allocation. So, I guess as a CEO, how much time did you spend kind of in the explicit realm of capital allocation? Uh, and knowing what you know now, um, through your experience as an investor, would you do anything differently if you were a CEO again, vis-a-vis -vis capital allocation? Um, yeah, so I probably only spent a couple hours a week at it. Um, part of having uh, out, outside investors and even before then was the value of a really good CFO is almost unmeasurable. Huge. Right? So if, you have, if you have a really good CFO, they understand these things at a level that you're just never really going to get your arms around. And they're looking at how the machine functions and making, you know, helping make those decisions. But let's say you're not quite there yet. Um, making sure that you really understand those pieces. Um, back to Jack Stack, I'm bringing him up a lot today. But one of the things that he talks a lot about is this concept of a fortress balance sheet. And when you look at what they were able to accomplish of starting with this, you know, terrible business that was not making any money and turning it into a multi-billion dollar enterprise, he credits a lot of the success to two things. One was this stake in the outcome thinking, basically giving everybody a feeling of how to teaching them how the business works and then giving them, you know, bonuses and input around and outputs around making the right decisions and learning. 
But the second one was with a fortress balance sheet, you can be opportunistic at the right time and do those things at the right time. So that's making that critical hire ahead of schedule because they, somebody just came on the market. That's uh, renewing your lease on your real estate or buying the building that you're in uh, when the landlord's desperate. Um, and when and making that acquisition of a company that uh, is gonna change the world for you in there. The, the big lesson that um, I learned about making these investments, and this comes from the investing world, is this thing called the J curve. So if you picture um, a curve on, you know, on a graph, a curve that looks like a J, this is the basic investment thesis for almost inv every investment made, which is when you spend some money on something, for a period of time, it's not gonna make you any money back. You're actually gonna to continue to lose money on that money, right? You're not getting a return on investment, et cetera. And then at some point, if you made a good investment, it's gonna turn around and start growing. And then eventually out pay itself back and then pay back a dividend for making that investment over time. So easy example is I'm gonna hire a new salesperson so I bring them on, I'm paying them a salary, they're in training, they're figuring out our product line. Let's say we're on a six month sales cycle, they start making sales calls, they uh, get a few orders in, and we finally fulfill those orders. That's probably six months before they've, or, or more, before they've even paid back what they cost during that first six months. And then after that, now that salesperson continues to produce, we're going to get an, out, an outsized return on that investment over time. So really understanding the J curve on the investments that you make in advance is very important. Uh, second uh, discipline, which kills most bad ideas, is coming up with what are the stage gates that we're going to. So let's just say we decide to expand into a new territory, right? We, we want to open up a new office in another town. So we go and we before we start that, we come up with a thesis of what the J curve looks like for making that investment. But then plugging in along that curve, if we're not to X by Y, we're going to pull the plug on this project. Or if we're at, you know, 5X by Y, we're going to double down on this investment. And making those decisions before it starts, because there's this human nature, it's called sunk cost fallacy that once you've made an investment, you go, well, I've already, I'm already in, I'm just gonna put a little more in and a little more in that you would never do if you were starting over is getting, it helps you get around that sunk cost mentality around the projects that, and pet projects that get you sucked in and you just keep feeding it you know, money. So understand the J curve and have stage gates where you're either gonna pull the plug or you're gonna double down really clearly laid out along the things that you might invest in. And that includes acquisitions, hiring people, new locations, new product lines, you name it. I found that in my experience, um, if you look at kind of the um, five uses of cash, um, it's reasonably easy to quantify certain of them and harder to quantify of others. So for example, if I, if I wanted to pay down debt, I, I can quantify that the return on that investment is basically my cost of debt or the interest rate that I'm paying. Um, if I want to issue dividends or repurchase shares, 
I can quantify that through my equity cost of capital. If I want to acquire another business, I mean, it's subject to a million assumptions, but at least I can project what my return on that investment might be. Um, it's the exist, you know, investing, reinvesting in existing operations part that I think most small to medium-sized businesses, CEOs don't sufficiently quantify, um, because heck, you know, I could buy another machine for my manufacturing business, or I could hire another developer for my software business. Um, particularly as it relates to people, I find CEOs don't really try to quantify the return on that investment because, yeah. You know, when, when CEOs are in a growth mindset, and particularly when they're operationally focused CEOs, they say, hey, you know, I run a manufacturing business, I need to, you know, purchase another machine, I'm going to get a 5% return on that investment. But if you have a piece of debt outstanding at a 7% interest rate, you know, maybe that's a better use of capital. So I, I found that, you know, in my experience as an operator, and also as, as an investor, that Small to medium-sized CEOs can be so in the weeds in the operations of the business that A, they fail to quantify what's the return on any given use of cash, and B, once you understand what that you know, uh, rate of return is, how does it compare to my other options vis-a-vis -vis uses of cash? Exactly. And if you go back to like the beginning of our conversation where you talk about what did you learn by um, being an investor versus being a um, operator that you know those early questions in our call um, that's what you learn from professional investors is they really ring that out and they understand what that j curve looks like whether you're you know so that you you brought up the, a great example of buying a machine or hiring another salesperson for that matter has got the same formula behind it, which is you're going to tie up a bunch of capital, a bunch of company resources, what's going to be the return on that? And does this turn into a monster you have to feed, right? And as a small business, one of the things that pe that you, di you didn't hit on, but I think is really important is this is the psychological side of it, that you fall in love with the idea of this new machine or this new person and you think that that's going to save like all the things that are wrong with your business. And it almost never works out if you really do the analysis on it. So one of the uses of cash that uh, we've touched on is acquiring another business. And I think that's that's a good segue into the next kind of bucket of questions I want to ask you, which is everything to do with M&A, buying and selling businesses. Um, and, and you've seen, you've been a part of... Um, a few successful inorganic growth strategies. And when I say inorganic, I mean, you know, uh, acquiring other businesses in the pursuit of growth. Um, yep. but, but the data is actually very clear in that historically, more value is actually destroyed in M&A than it is created. Said another yep. way, the average transaction does not create equity value. So I guess two-part question for you, you know, A, why do you think that is? And B, you know, based on your experience, what are some things that define successful, you know, roll-ups or acquisitions uh, as opposed to unsuccessful roll-ups or acquisitions? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of experience. We've had, I've, I've been involved in a lot of transactions and I've seen both sides of ones that have worked really well and ones that don't. So at a high level, the number one reason that they don't work is uh, lack of discipline, right? In the in the process of determining who you're going to buy and how and what are the require you know what are the reasons for making the buy and what are the results that come out. 
um, a lot of times you're chasing something, right? So you're looking for a savior. Somebody has something that you want, right? Whether it's uh, a, a, you know, a team of people that you, you know, you're struck, as you mentioned, a lot of times people are doing acquisitions these days to acquire a team because it's so hard to hire right now, as you pointed out earlier. Um, or they maybe they're trying to get a customer list or market coverage or, uh, you know, equipment or know-how or IP. And they haven't really done the work behind really understanding and kind of funny, it goes back to that same thing about investments, right? This is just a different kind of investment. What's the expectations on the other side of it? And how do you know that it's going to work? When you look at the professionals like Riverside or, you know, any professional investment firm, they have a very rigorous process that they ring through to figure out that they go through to figure out how is this going to fit together and what are those stage gates along the way that are going to tell us it's working and really ring out what it is when we don't want to look for a savior we want to take our good business and put it together with another good business that's got some form of adjacencies or efficiencies that we can easily get and making sure you have that is really important right so and where, and where i've seen it going wrong is like you fall in love with something and you just go for it and you and is that is that lack of discipline in the does it manifest more in the purchase process or does it man, manifest more in the integrate like post acquisition integration process unfortunately it's both right so the first part is like you shove through a deal where you haven't really done all your homework on one side of it. And then the second side is, you know, you are already a busy company and now you've acquired this other company that was also busy and you now try to start mushing things together and it's hard, right? People don't like your benefit plan, you know, what they, you know, where's the office going to be and what's going to happen with where you have redundancies and blah, blah, blah. And it just gets hard. And so you just ignore that stuff. And you don't fully integrate, you just kind of hope that things are going to integrate well, and it's almost always a disaster. There's this moment in time when you acquire a company that you're the new sheriff in town, and you can make big changes quickly without retribution. But what happens later, if you let it sit for too long, is that you'll end up with people get used to that other oh, just leaving it alone or they don't have a, you know have it put together it's that's where you start to really have problems that you didn't get that clarity on the other side so a couple of tools that work with MA that i've found to be very very good uh, one is to use this tool called the business model canvas it's by alex osterwilder it's a company called uh Strategizer. Strategizer. And yep. um, actually, I coached them for a little while. Um, but the it is lay out your business on the business model canvas. And there's tons of videos online and stuff of how to do this. And then overlay their business and see how it fits as a starting place. Then the second exercise that I would do is do the future state combined company accountability chart. Uh, the accountability chart comes from a book called Traction and basically walk with the, the your team, figure out 
what the future state looks like as soon as you can so you can figure out like where do you have redundancy who's going to own what and what are the metrics we're going to use to judge the success of this business so uh for example let's say i buy a business for geographic reach but but i've got the products i want to spread into that geography so that i'm now a critical kpi is new business at that business i acquired that is from the product lines that i'm bringing to the party right and making sure that somebody owns that and somebody has it so that you can make that go and the most dangerous thing when you do an acquisition um one of the uh, mentors for our business um is this guy jim sharp who's a business a professor over at um harvard business school and he calls the term pips so PIP stands for previously important people. <laughs> and so when you acquire a company and let's say that you're gonna keep the CEO of that company around, but now they're gonna have a new role. And usually that role has like strategy in the title, right? Their chief strategy officer or some such thing like that. Uh, that person can cause so much damage, cultural damage and uh, progress damage if you don't manage them well. If previously yeah. important people are a real problem for the business. So you want to try and identify that as quick as possible. That's that's actually um, such an important point that I don't think people give enough credence to. Uh, when buying companies, naturally, there's a lot that needs to be quantified and understood. And yet this concept that might feel a little soft or qualitative to people, which is managing the seller, particularly if that seller was uh, an owner slash CEO. So she played a operational role in the business as opposed to a more active role. That was when I bought my business, um, that was perhaps where I spent most of my mental energy. And I, I think it's something that's underestimated. So based on your experience acquiring companies, when you're dealing with an owner CEO, um, what have you learned about the best way to deal with them? I mean, certainly, uh, you know, situation by situation, there has to be a lot of variability, but I guess speaking at a more general level, is there a structure or process that you like to repeat? You know, things like, do they stay with the business? Do they not stay with the business? Do they roll equity? Do they not roll equity? What have you, what have you learned about how to best deal with situations like that? So it's, it's, it is very situationally dependent, but um, if, they're, if they're integral to the business and they're gonna stick around, the first thing is uh, do that accountability chart exercise and figure out what are the metrics they're gonna own in order to keep their job. Right. That's probably the most important thing. Having them just kind of floating around, you know, poking around at strategy is not going to work. It'll be a disaster. Um, if they've accomplished financial freedom as part of them selling the business to you, so they don't have to work anymore um, or don't have to work for a while, when things get tough, they're going to bolt. That's guaranteed that I have yet to see that not play out in, you know, many dozens of transactions. So just know that that's going to happen there when it starts getting hard, they're going to be like, I'm out of here. I'm going to go mm. you know, travel or whatever, which is exactly um, what happened to my sellers, I should add. So there's another data point for you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, again, just watch out for those pips, right? So you combine two entities together and now you've got two people who were once head of sales and now one works for the other for accounting or whatever, it's really a big challenge for them on that side of the equation to, to be that, you know, from going from being the ruler of the universe to uh, not, you know, uh, uh, having a boss 
is a very difficult transition for lots of the sellers. Very, very, and understandably so. I think, you know, in my experience managing a seller, we, we signed them to a two-year employment agreement under the assumption that, you know, there was some key man risk there and I wanted to maximize um, the period of time during which knowledge transfer and relationship transfer could occur. So academically, it all made good sense. What I think we both failed to realize is, um, A, I think my sellers failed to recognize how difficult it would be to watch somebody else make changes to the baby that they had raised for 20 years. And B, I failed to recognize how much time and kind of mind share and emotional energy I had to dedicate to keep them placated because I was very focused on keeping them placated because I thought that a non-functioning or toxic relationship between us would have a much more negative effect than you know customers leaving or suppliers balking ever could. And so I think we both kind of... Um, didn't quite understand what we were getting ourselves into. And within nine months of that two years, there was a mutual decision for us to part ways. Yep. And that's pretty typical. It's, it's very typical. It's a really hard transition to make for anybody who sells their business to, to being a, a king to not the king anymore. So let's talk about um, selling. Um, I guess having, having sold a business myself, there's a couple things I know now that I, I didn't know before. Um, business that they really don't understand. Like one of the things, for example, is when you sell a business, it's very rare to completely take all of your chips off the table and or take all of your risk off the table. A lot of sellers don't understand that in selling a business, you're still assuming risk. You're not offloading all of your risk to the buyer. What are some other things that in your experience, small to medium-sized business CEOs generally not understand about selling their business? Yeah, so probably the, the first one is um, that, that we, we just spoke about in reverse, right? Which is what it is to move from being the king of the universe to a, you know, a prince and perhaps an outcast prince, right? So if you're losing interest and so on, you're watching your influence get, you know, more and more diluted inside the business. That's a really hard change from, you know, what you said turned into action immediately to basically, you know, you feel like the company's being run by committee. They have a different, you know, outlook on things. They don't care about the customers the way you cared about them. Basically, if it's a professional company that's buying you, they're switching from your, your, you know, your passion project that you started to trying to turn this thing into a machine that prints money. And that may not always play well. You have relationships with the people there that are going to leave that don't fit, you know, into the puzzle. Um, and you're going to have relationships with the customers and with your vendors and all of this stuff. And they're, you're, you're going to get caught in the middle of all this stuff. So that's just in general, you know, psychologically, if you're going to stick around, those are things to be thinking about as well. You know, the antidote for that is have a plan for the other side. So don't just, you know, go from one place to the other from, you know, owning the company and selling it. And now you're on the other side of it, but really have a plan. Like when this gets, have an exit strategy that's really clear for you and have, if at all possible, a gap year built in there. So you don't jump 
from one thing to the next, which will be your temptation because you're used to being, you know, in the flow of things, making lots of stuff happen and being the king and like that drive to want to do that again quickly versus, uh, I don't know, fixing the broken doorknob at your house that's been broken for 10 years um, <laughs> will be, it's a really hard transition. It was hard for me and I had a plan. I built our business to sell it. And that, you know, switch of gears is very, very challenging. There's lots of good books on that I mentioned later. So what, like for you, uh, life on the other side of an exit. So from the selling owner CEO, um, yeah. was it, was the experience what you thought it would be? So, so for example, when I sold my business, I had spent years and years and years anticipating this kind of one moment mm -hmm. of selling it. And I built it up in my mind so much that it was almost, you know, of biblical proportions. Yeah. Uh, and then when it happened, you know, the way that I described the feelings that I had is first of all, I felt relief more than I felt happiness. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that I told, you know, my friends and family is um, it felt almost anticlimactic. I guess I had, I had built it up so much in my head that I was almost disappointed um, in my emotional reaction to it. So, you know, life on the other side of an exit for you, was it what you thought it would be? And what do CEOs generally not understand about life on the other side of an exit? Yeah, so I, I covered a lot of that earlier of this, you know, th that it's a very difficult transition from being kind of the center of the universe to being, you know, a party of one on the outside, right? That often it's got a lot of years behind it. I was very fortunate that um, one of the things that Riverside did when they bought our company was they said, you know, part of our playbook is you need to hire a coach. Well, we, we have a list or you can go find your own. And so I went out and I sought and found this great guy who is in his, you know, his 80s now, he was in his 70s then, who had built a business very similar to ours and then had exited and found meaning on the other side after going through lots of stuff. And so I had him kind of at my side as I was going through this process of selling the business. And he gave me some really good advice, which was, uh, you know, build your bucket list of the things that you you know you really want to have happen and and design your ideal calendar and then commit to the people that you care about your friend your family and your friends for all the things that you want to do with them and actually go and book all that stuff all non-refundable etc so when i knew the company was coming to you know the company sale was around the corner I started planning with people so that I had a very full calendar and commitments that would be painful to break on the other side of the deal so that I was able to, you know, pave the way out the door with something of value and have that time where I was busy, but I was doing things that were outside of the business, new things that I could gain some perspective before I dove back into whatever I was going to dive into next. Yeah. And for whatever it's worth, the uh, advice that I saw, uh, it's, it's very, in my experience, it's very rare to get unanimous advice. Usually when you ask 10 people for advice, you often get 10, perhaps even more data points or opinions. But when I kind of canvassed my group of people that I trust, people who have sold businesses before, the only unanimous piece of advice that I got and thankfully listened to they all said, 
you know, if you're able to do it financially, take at least a year off. Um, And that's what I've done. And gosh, am I happy that I I listened (laughs) to that advice. And and a lot of the entrepreneurs that I know who have not taken a year off um, wish that they had. Yeah, I mean, I've seen so many crazy things. I've had, you know, quite a few forum mates and people I know and now clients who have uh, exited without a plan and just watched, you know, the train wreck that's on the other side of all kinds of craziness, you know, investing in all kinds of stuff, getting involved with all kinds of, you know, boards, uh, buying all kinds of stuff that you end up selling, you know, later, you know, the jet or the boat or whatever, you know, all, all that stuff. And so the two things, one thing that they told me was make, you know, make a plan. Like you, you have that time. I actually took about two years off in the end. And uh, the second thing was make a commitment not to buy anything until Mm -hmm. you've sat on it and don't invest the money, you know, just kind of tuck it away safe and like spend your time learning and figuring things out and then make your decisions, you know, during that, that cycle. So your new job was, let me learn about how I want to invest the money that I have so I can uh, secure my future. And then also figure out like, what gives is my passion project that I'm going to focus on next that when uh, for work, that's going to be, uh, you know, rewarding versus just jumping into the next opportunity that comes along. So a couple more questions uh, before we conclude. The last topic before we conclude uh, that I'd like to cover is this idea of uh, managing yourself as an entrepreneur and as a CEO. And so, you know, you've, you've done a lot um, in your career as a CEO and as an entrepreneur. And, and I don't know this to be true, but I'm going to guess, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that at times um, your role as a CEO and entrepreneur took a toll on you personally, perhaps took a toll on your family, um, because it does for almost all of us. Um, so over the years, like what have you learned about how to manage yourself? What have you learned about ways to stay motivated and engaged and, you know, ways to ensure that you can continue to run what is uh, ultimately a marathon and not a sprint. Yeah. I, so I think, you know, at a high level, it's like keeping your eyes focused out in the distance. I'm a, you know, mountain biker and motorcycle guy, et cetera. Right. And the way that you ride effectively is you look further out than you think you don't look down at your wheel, you look further out. And so when you get bounced around, as long as your eyes are locked on where you want to go, 99.9% of the time, you'll recover and get back moving in the right direction when you get knocked off, right? So that's the just something I had learned from years of motorcycles and mountain bikes and so on. Then the other side of it is surround yourself with people who can uh, provide you with perspective, right? So um probably the best single business decision I ever made was joining EO 22 years ago, 23 years ago, um, where you're, you're surrounded with peers, other people who are in similar circumstances and in a forum and in general, and having people that you can talk to on a regular basis about the challenges that you're facing and hear the challenges they have, because probably somebody's been through what you've gone through or you're going through. And so having that perspective of your forum and other people are out there, um, I'm as a coach now, I'm involved in several different masterminds with other coaches where we share best practices and learn. So that's another bucket. And then if at all possible, 
find a coach, somebody whose job it is to help you play the game at the next level up. Lots of times along the journey, my ability to go to that gentleman I mentioned earlier and say, hey, I'm struggling with this, you know, what, what perspective could you share with me? And having them help get, get perspective, because usually a lot of the problems in your own head. And then secondly, uh, what share with me some of the strategies of either they or others have used to get through, you know, a cash crisis, uh, whatever, you know, we grow in our business, we nearly died a whole bunch of times, probably you too. Um, and it could have killed us, but I had, I got perspective from having that. Now, part of managing yourself as CEO is managing and allocating your time. Um, and I know a lot of CEOs struggle with this because there is an endless number of things to do. And then there are some things that are urgent, some things that are important, uh, some things that are both, some things that are neither. Um, so did you follow any specific processes or use any specific tools in terms of managing your time? Uh, and whether you did or you didn't, what have you learned over the years about how to best allocate your time and you know, try to answer the question, what's the most important thing that I should be working on or what, what should I be doing today? Right. So, so two things come to mind. First is rhythms set you free. So if you have rhythms, um, so the way that I kind of construct, and what I mean by that is I constructed my calendar that there was times and places to talk about the things that needed to be talked about, right? So uh, in running the business, there was a time and a place each week where I met with the CFO and the other and, and, and other people on the team. And we talked about our financial circumstances that week and what's the most important and what's the most important thing we need to solve that week. Same thing for sales, same thing for manufacturing, same thing for operations, et cetera. So people knew as I was the CEO of the company that unless it was like really your hair's on fire, we got to solve this problem right in this moment, they saved up the problems that we needed to talk about for that meeting that happened once a week, the finance meeting, the sales meeting, et cetera. And the second part of that was then the discipline to not try to spot solve the problems, but let's get all the problems out on the table, create a list of all the issues that we have, and then go to that list and say, of all the issues that we have, what's the most important one for us to solve right now? And if we get through that one, what's the next most important one to solve and like agree on that and then really just have the discipline to solve one or two problems a week and let the rest of them go by, not try to solve every problem, but like only the most important ones that really made uh, staying on top of things much, much easier than it would be otherwise. And yeah. but because people had to wait that week sometimes as much as a week to talk to me about it a lot of things resolved themselves. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that was my um, experience blocking, blocking too. Off, I, I'd say the other thing is blocking off time. So I start every week. I still do this discipline uh, in my calendar. I block off um, time to think, time to write, time to focus on different areas. And that fills my calendar partially with, you know, along with exercise and family time and all that stuff so that, um, and you put that stuff in the calendar first, and then you fit the other stuff in around it. That's been very, very helpful tool for me. So moving on to uh, two concluding questions, we've talked about 
a lot of books today, uh, which is great. Um, so if you were to, so this might be a challenging question, but if you were to have kind of a Mount Rushmore of books that you think every CEO of small and medium-sized business should read, um, what books would you feature? And, and it, you know what, it doesn't even have to be books. It could be, you know, a blog to follow, a, a seminar to attend, you know, whatever. A Mount Rushmore of resources that SMB yeah. CEOs absolutely should familiarize themselves with. What would you put on that Mount Rushmore? So, so I start. I would start with get yourself in a peer group if you're not in one, like EO, YPO, Vistage, whatever. But get yourself into a group uh, where the purpose of the group is to raise your level of play and support each other with best practices learned and applied, right? That's the very first thing. Um, the second thing is find mentors and coaches as, and ideally I've been so blessed in my career that I've, each time I've made a move into a different industry or a different thing that I've gone out and sought like, who's the best person or best people in this industry, the people who are really knocking it out of the park and are not directly competitive with me. They're in another market outside or in an adjacent market or whatever, and asking them to spend some time with me, some with stock options, others with donating to their charity, whatever. But I wanna surround myself with people who are uh, have been and done what I'm trying to do. And um, that's been very, very successful for me. Um, as kind of the two resources I would be hunting around for. Uh, then uh, books in general, I mentioned the E-Myth earlier for like the early and the lean startup or two for um, if you're really early in the game, getting your business uh, figured out and being smart about how you spend money early on. Um, there's another book for that also, it's called Profit First. Uh, this guy, uh, Mike Michalowicz is a uh, great author and he's actually a forum mate of mine for nearly 20 years. Um, that's uh, about building your business with profit first, not second. And that that's a long topic. Um, then Tools of Titans, uh, that's Tim Ferriss book, a four hour work week for just thinking about how things work differently. Mm -hmm. uh, as far as uh, team dynamics, anything and everything by Patrick Lencioni and Jim Collins. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, you want to read those books and study them. They have so many great lessons. The number one Lencioni book is Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yeah. Uh, understand and master that. Um, Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. Um, Vern was pretty much my coach early on in our business. Um, so great, great book. And then Traction and Rocket Fuel from the EOS guys, uh, great books. Uh, and Seven Habits of Highly Effective People for Managing Yourself. And then Everything by Jack Stack um, that he wrote are, are all great, great books. That's excellent. Um, I've, I've read every single one of those except for Jack Stack. So after this, I'm going to go on Amazon and buy some of his stuff. The, uh, the, the other thing that I would add to, um, you mentioned Tools of Titans by Tim Ferriss. Mm -hmm. um, Tim Ferriss has a podcast called The Tim Ferriss Show. I've, yeah. I've become a, a listener and uh, wow, uh, it's very yeah. powerful and you learn a lot from it. So I, I would just add uh, The Tim Ferriss Show as a podcast that a lot of entrepreneurs would read. Yep, I'm a I'm a huge fan. I think I've listened to every single weird one, but now like I think 500 or some some crazy number. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If if you could 
kind of scream something from, from the proverbial mountaintops. And every small to medium-sized business CEO could hear and fully digest what you're screaming. What would you say and why? So um, the perspective is the get perspective, right? And the perspective is around this concept of a flywheel. So Jim Collins came up with this a long time ago in the book, Good to Great, where he saw, he studied businesses that outperformed similar businesses by an order of magnitude or more. And your business is a flywheel. And so things that happen in the beginning, it's a flywheel is big and heavy and it's hard to get moving, takes a lot of effort. And if you do it right, you eventually start to get momentum and the business begins to take on a life of its own and, and gain a momentum of its own. And if you think about your business as a flywheel, that means that each part of your business in, in the customer journey and in the processes and so on, either are pushing the flywheel a little bit faster or it's slowing it down. And if you can map that out and visualize it, now the focus of the business is always about how do I make the flywheel go a little bit faster? Profits make the, the flywheel go a little bit faster. People who are trained well make the flywheel go a little bit faster. Uh, better systems and, and documentation makes the flywheel go faster. Figuring out your value proposition and refining it, making the, the uh, value to your customer higher and higher makes the flywheel go faster. And so get figure that out, figure out what is the flywheel and now relentlessly focus on improving how that flywheel works. And it's a beautiful picture that you can share with your employees, with your customers, with your vendors, with your bank, et cetera. Like how, what, this is how this business works and here's all the elements and here's what we're doing to make it better over time. Yep. Uh, Rich, if, if people want to find you uh, online, be it for coaching or otherwise, is there a, a good place for them to go? Yeah, so it's uh, freescalecoaching.com is the is the website and um that's got all our information in there um there's a bunch of videos uh i did a class um at harvard a couple of years ago that's uh called uh, around how to build value in your business and a framework for doing so you can watch that video there's a freescale youtube channel that has a bunch of videos in there on different topics along with uh, a bunch of our clients talking about stuff that they do awesome uh, Rich Manders, thank you so much for your time. Uh, really great conversation. So many nuggets of wisdom. And uh, we really appreciate you being generous with your time and your insights. Thanks. It was nice talking to you. Have a great day. Hey, guys, Steve here. Just a few final reminders before you take off today. Remember that you can check out the show notes from today at inthetrenches.net forward slash podcast, where I include a list of all of the questions that I asked today, as well as where to skip to in the audio to listen to any given question, links to each of the resources that we discussed, and finally, a written transcript of our discussion that you can download to highlight, copy, take notes, or otherwise use as you see fit. Lastly, if you are so inclined, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a quick rating on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you happen to listen to In the Trenches. More and better ratings help me attract better guests, which I ultimately hope will benefit you. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next time.